Welcome back to What Would Mozart Do? Today, I'm talking to contralto Cindy Sadler. In our chat, Cindy talks extensively about the various issues that affect creating and maintaining a portfolio career in the arts. And she also highlights the importance of accepting the responsibility of being the CEO of one's own career. Hello, Cindy. How are you? I'm good, Nico. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, but can I ask you that you first just introduce yourself to the listeners, that they get an idea of your background? Okay, sure. Well, my name is Cindy Sadler. I am a professional contralto, arts administrator, writer, uh, stage director, educator, bit of a portfolio artist. I'm a native Texan. I'm I'm coming to you from Austin, Texas right now. And let's see, um, what else can I tell you? I'm married to a software engineer and I'm riding out this uh, pandemic basically on my abilities as a portfolio artist. The things that I have done in addition to my singing or as in support of my singing have sort of helped me get through this pandemic when I haven't been able to perform as much. Right. So so what specific activities are you taking part in at the moment then that you are focusing on? Well, let's see. When the pandemic first started uh, last March or when we started lockdown, one of the very first things I did was to start up a summer opera program called the DIY, the do-it-yourself summer program. And this was in response to the fact that so many young artists and student artists were losing their gigs. I mean, we all lost gigs, let's face it. I had a, I was supposed to go and sing uh, Figaro with Shreveport Opera and, mm -hmm. and that got canceled. Um, everybody I knew lost gigs. And, you know, I just sort of looked around and saw that it was particularly hard on the kids, the young artists. You know, we all work so hard to get each and every opportunity that we have. And it was just heartbreaking. And I was not the only person who felt that way. One of the things I saw immediately when the pandemic started was how much concern and love that more established artists had for the young artists. There's a lot of sympathy and empathy out mm -hmm. there because we all went through what the youngins are going through. And so when I announced that I was going to do this online summer program, and it was going to be pay what you can, because a lot of kids lost all the money that they had put into to the program. Some programs did not pay people back their tuition, even though they canceled oh, their program. And I just thought that was terrible. So it started off being, hey, if you lost money, you can come and do this for free. Well, I immediately had people like Kristen Gerke and Nick Clapton, mm -hmm. one of your countrymen, and all these other people, um, Claire Buravac and Christopher Mataliano, who were arts administrators in the U.S., Beth Parker, a, a coach, Susan Icorn Young, a, a coach and teacher, all these people basically volunteered no, that came on to the faculty without expecting to be paid. I was going to do it all myself. I was going to maybe like ask one or two people I knew to do maybe some master classes. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I ended up having this stellar international faculty, none of whom were expecting to be paid a cent. Um, and the students were told that to literally pay what they could. They had to apply for it. They did not have to audition. It was not a talent-based thing at all. Mm -hmm. um, but because it was pay what they can, you know, people were very honest with what they could pay. We had one or two people who didn't pay anything, who just yeah. couldn't. But most people paid, a, you know, a decent amount of money. And it was enough to pay all of my colleagues Everybody who was involved got paid, even though they didn't intend to be. And I'm, I got paid, too. Um, and so it was a win-win situation for everybody. Um, so that was one of my – the experience that I have had as an arts administrator, as someone who runs – a program. I, I have a regular program that has yes. run for the past 15 years called Spotlight on Opera. And mm -hmm. we still did that too. We pivoted to online. Um, but, but because 
um, I had that experience doing that. I was able to put together this. And also I used my contacts from my years as a singer and a writer. And, you know, some of these people were colleagues of mine. Some were people that I just knew over the internet mm-hmm. from moderating the new forum for classical singers, you know, just, just connections. So that's kind of how I was able to immediately pivot and do that. And then I, from that, I put together a couple of online programs actually grew out of the DIY program because there were a couple of things that we courses that we had going on that people just did not want to have end. And they were sort of mentorship type programs. So I've continued to do those. It continues to be on the pay to sing model because I don't think it's fair um, right now for me to ask people to pay a lot of money for something. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's worked out very well for everybody. I think fairly, and yeah, I mean, it's not paying my rent necessarily, but it's it's definitely giving me a little extra income that I wasn't expecting to have. So, you know, that's kind of one of the things that we do as artists. We And, and I think that one of the things that I teach my students, is, and I think it's really important to realize, even before the pandemic happened, mm-hmm. is that it's a very, very tiny percentage of people who are making a living full-time performing. Yes. And when I say making a living, I mean paying all their bills. A lot of people who are able to perform and not have any other outside work have some other form of support. Either they have a spouse who pays the bills or they have family money or something. Mm-hmm. And this is not to uh, – I'm not um, – what do I want to say? I'm not disparaging those people. We all come from different backgrounds and and nobody can be blamed for making the most of, of whatever fate has handed them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you're not one of those people, <laughs> then you've got to figure it out some other way. And, yeah. um, and, and so what I think, I, you know, I don't know what the education is like in the UK, but in, in the United States, um, Still, people aren't really taught that there are many, many paths to success as a professional artist. And they don't all mean that we're working full-time as performers. Sure, we would all love to be doing that, you know, if only there were a clear a clear career path to that. But there's not. And honestly, there never has been. No. So I think normalizing the idea that we are all um, – uh, multi-genre or 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 portfolio artists or um, whatever you want to call it, have a lot of side hustles, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, that's actually the normal thing. So would you say this is a norm in the profession that you have to have various different skills, various different streams of um, income and creativity? that has never really been properly communicated to those who study to join the creative world of singing. And why do you think is that, that it's not properly communicated? I do think it's a norm. Um, and I, I, I do think it's always been this way. But because there are different, there are different strata Mm-hmm. that performers occupy. Not all of us are going to be the superstars. However, we're all taught to strive for that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with with being, you know, saying, hey, this is the top, this is what you want to strive for, even though it's mm-hmm. not for everybody. People usually figure that out for themselves along the way. Yeah. Um, but I do think that One of the problems with arts education is that there is this emphasis on teaching people the skill set and the background material, but they don't teach people the business side. There's not always a realistic view about how you get out there and transform from being a student into a working artist. Yeah. Nor is there a very clear viewpoint of what that might look like. And it's something that people have just always been expected to learn on their own, which I think is wasteful. 
yeah. um, and something that's easily remedied. And yet, one often finds that schools are reluctant to have to bring in people from outside of academia to teach that on any kind of regular basis. I mean, they'll bring people, they'll bring master classes in or things like that, but they, they often, if they do have any kind of business training, it is sort of generic for all the different, for example, in a music school, it will be instrumentalists and singers. Well, instrumentalists and singers have a very different career path. Yes. Absolutely. And it also and depends on which some, instrument, of course. Yeah, that too. And there are some, and for that matter, what about conductors and composers? Yeah. Um, stage directors. I mean, they all have, there are some overlapping elements, but by far not all of them are. You know, so I, I see that as being something of a problem that schools are reluctant to address that and may not have faculty who have been working or are working concurrently, who can really talk to people about what's going on right now mm -hmm. in the business. And it changes. I mean, I've been, I've, I've been a guest at schools. Um, normally what I do is go in and teach a, a session or a, a, you know, have a little short residency there and teach like a week's worth of classes. Yeah. But I've been at these schools where I have had to, you know, bite my tongue because I've heard teachers giving really outdated information mm -hmm. uh, to the students. And I have to either find a tactful way to talk around that or, you know, pull the teacher aside and say, you know, nobody uses eight by 10 black and white glossies anymore. And they haven't for a really long time. <laughs> I mean, that's actually something that I, that I heard a teacher tell their students very authoritatively. And, um, <laughs> you know, so, so that's a bit of a problem because, you know, they're teaching, sometimes they did have a career and they're teaching mm -hmm. what they did. But, you know, if that was 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's not the same anymore. And, yeah. you know, certainly moving forward, th there's a lot that's up in the air. Yes. So it's really what I hear you pointing out is responsibility. It's the responsibility of teachers or those in academia being really up to date and up to speed with the current situation in the industry, whether there's a pandemic or not. And at the same time, I hear the responsibility of the students or those who are learning the craft to be aware of what is out there and trying to learn as quickly as possible the business aspect um, of running a career as an instrumentalist, a composer, conductor, or a singer? Well, first of all, I wouldn't want to say that it's the personal responsibility or even the professional responsibility of individual teachers. I wouldn't want to imply that at all. Right. Um, what I would say is that, that the the faculty as a whole, as they sit down to set the, you know, the curriculum, yeah. need to consider where this information is going to come from. And I do think that business training should be a part of the curriculum for any arts organization or any arts um, institution that's, that's training artists. Yeah. Um, if, if they don't have it as a class in their curriculum, and I understand. I've I've been on faculty before. It, it it's hard to fit those things in. It's it's a clunky. It takes a while to change a curriculum yeah. or to add stuff to it. There's a whole system you have to go through. Academia is a world in and unto itself. Quite. <laughs> but if they're not going to get it front on their own curriculum, then they need to be bringing somebody in, or they need to be making sure they have at least one or two people on their faculty who are working musicians or working artists mm -hmm. who regularly talk to the students about that. Yes. That's how I would phrase my, my feeling about the responsibility of academia as a whole. I don't want, you know, the voice teacher is often the very first person, the first, sort of the first line of resistance that these students have. 
in terms of getting their professional education. And it's important for those voice teachers, too, to get this information because sometimes they don't have it. You know, there are people, they're very fine teachers who go right from their own education, essentially into teaching because their gift is teaching. Yes. In addition to performing, but maybe their primary passion in teaching is, is teaching. Mm-hmm. So, but they, they too need that information to come from somewhere. So there is a responsibility for teachers to educate themselves up to a point. I wouldn't want to say that like the voice teacher is responsible for making sure their student understands the profession. No. So it's more of an institutional thing. In my opinion, yes. An institutional issue. Um, And I mean, as you touched on that already, it takes time for curricula to change. I mean, usually four to five years to really take something on board. And this is a bit of a two-pronged question. The one is, what would you suggest um, an institution does during those five years of process as it as the new subject, if you like, becomes embedded in the um, curriculum. And secondly, when you go in on these one-day courses that you would do at an institution, what are the issues that you are focusing on, say, in a three-hour seminar? Okay, well... um you might have to remind me of that halfway through, but that's, that's all right. <laughs> but let me let, to address the first part. This is go- going to sound very self-serving because, of course, I am one of those people who teaches these webinars. But I do think that, especially now when so many classes are online, that one of the things that they can do is have somebody come in. Nobody can perform right now in their opera workshops, or they if they're performing, nobody can perform live. Yes. I should say that because people are being very creative about coming up with ways to perform. But, you know, one of the things I've been doing this fall or last fall was going around and teaching in at these different institutions and providing content for their opera workshops where, you know, sort of to replace time that would have been spent rehearsing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um so that's one thing you can do is is bring in somebody from the outside. But the other thing is, you know, maybe draw on your professors that have had recent experience or reach out to professionals in the in your area. Yeah. And I can guarantee you everybody on your faculty has connections, has professional connections out there. Get them to ask somebody to come in. And a lot of people are willing to do little one-offs you know, little informal chats. What I do is very systematic. I, I cover very specific things in in detail, mm-hmm. but, you know, and I give homework assignments and stuff like that. So it's it's almost like a course. But you could certainly get a lot of value out of asking, you know, your roommate from college who is off having a big career to come in and talk about their career and what they're doing, because that's also very valuable is just getting all that perspective on, you know, different people's career paths. Yes. You know, a variety of people. I think we tend to sometimes focus on the celebrities, the people who are having the big success, the splashy success. Again, nothing wrong with that, but it would also be very realistic to have somebody talk about, you know, well, I probably sing 40% of the time, and then I I am a music director at this church, and this is how I got into it, and then I have a private voice studio. Yes. Because that's the reality for most people, that they're doing something more like that. Yeah, that it's multifaceted, and that will also highlight the different skills that that one has to learn, or that you might have um, naturally just come to you if you're aware that those are the things that you could do. Absolutely. And I don't think that that, that's one thing that I don't think a lot of students are told about. Mm -hmm. And I actually have, as part of one of my um, lectures, a whole, I go through a whole list of professions that you can have, performance adjacent professions and things that can help you, you know, with your, because they're, to be a performer, you, it requires a certain quality 
of work, of your, you know, your side hustles, whatever they are, you have to have a lot of flexibility and flexibility, flexible jobs aren't always well-paying jobs. So, you know, you have to figure out your own balance. And that's one of the things that I talk about. I want to skip back, if you don't mind, to you had asked before about the responsibility of learning about the pers- the profession. And we talked about teachers, but I'd like to talk a yeah. little bit about students and their responsibility. Mm-hmm. Students often don't what one of the things that they're things that they're lacking and they cannot easily develop just by opening a book or researching on the internet is perspective. Hmm. Perspective is something that comes over time. And it comes from also just from experience. So I don't think it's fair to put as much of the onus of learning about the profession on the students. They should be curious. They should be, you know, they should be out there looking for whatever information they can find. But they need help in being led to the right sources, my goal for them is always to teach them to ask the right questions yeah. rather than trying to provide them with all the information. And one of the things that I always tell, you know, these, these bright, curious young minds is, you know, you do have to do your homework. You can't come up to me and say, essentially, how do you opera? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the time, especially in a, in a, you know, a private message or an email to write that to you go read my blog. I've written articles about yes. that. You know, go read Laura Claycomb's blog. Go read the, the Wolf Trap Opera blog. There's tons of stuff out there. They may not know. You have to, what, what they need to ask you is, where do I go to learn about this? Mm-hmm. Or ask you something specific. How do I get recommendation letters written? How do I ask for help from somebody? How do I, how do I get an audition? Those are specific things that I can, you know, teach you in not very, not a huge amount of time, or at least get you started, I yeah. should say. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, talk to me for 10 minutes and you'll be an expert. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, but, but I can get you started on it. So that's, that's what I wanted to say about the, the student perspective. So it's empowering the students really to feel that they're able to ask questions and that it's very much needed for them to ask questions rather than expecting the answers just to be given to them. Well, I would think and hope that that would be true of any student in any kind of uh, field of study. Yes. <laughs> just in music. Exactly. So, you know, just constant, constant questioning, I guess. Well, I mean, you are you're the CEO of you. Yeah. Um, when you're a student, when you're a young professional, nobody else cares as much about you and your life as you do. So if you're not willing to get out there and um, explore and work for yourself, if you're not, if you're just going to sit around and wait for things to be given to you, then then you don't deserve to have a professional singing career because <laughs> yeah. that's just not the way it works. No. You know, um, you've, you've got to have some kind of curiosity and fire in your belly to, yeah. to put on this kind of work. Um, and that, so. actually, that actually beautifully connects with, I want to come back to DIY opera and the, the guests that you had, the faculty that you very quickly assembled I guess also because nobody is working at the time, it sort of made it a much more even playing field, if you like, uh, that people are more open to be contacted or perhaps due to social media, students and young professionals feel more able to contact those who they look up to or respect. Do you think that's an accurate thought? Absolutely. And um, just to clarify, I I don't feel that I really assembled this faculty. They sort of showed up and rang my doorbell (laughs) and said, 
hey, I'd really like to be a part of this. That's wonderful. <laughs> and, you know, there were like one or two people that I actually went to and asked if they would do it. But most of them, I would say 95% of the faculty said, hey, I heard you were doing this. I want to do, I want to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I'm constantly astounded and grateful for the generosity of my colleagues. And, um, you know, I know that a lot of young people feel that society has left them behind, but mm-hmm. my observation about at least the music business is the other artists really care a lot about the young artists. There's yeah. a lot of concern about what they have to go through. And so I think that that should be very encouraging to young artists um, when they do consider reaching out to someone. Mm-hmm. Yes. Most of the time, people really do want to help you. And I, th- I think it's, this is what is a wonderful thing that came out of the pandemic, if you like, is the fact that, as you say, these amazing professionals are open to helping the younger students. But at the same time, I guess the students then realize that because we can so easily put those that we respect on pedestals, right? And Mm -hmm. that we're all people and we're all in the same fight. Uh, Fight is perhaps not the right word, but the the same need to get to our goals, whatever they might be, be it the, the met stage or be it to be a fantastic uh, teacher at whatever level. Um, you know, there, there's a big spectrum as we've spoken about already. So I think it's really become an opportunity for everybody to just make much more connection, don't you think? Oh, I absolutely agree. You know, people who are prominent know how to protect themselves. They know how to set boundaries. Yeah. And, you know, and some of these folks did, but what I found was that for the most part, once they have quote unquote met somebody, even just through Zoom, mm-hmm. the doors open. I heard many of them say, you know, in master classes or whatever, say to a student, hey, keep in touch. Let me let me know what's going on with you. Sure you can write to me. Yeah. And this was across the board, agents, performers, faculty, teachers, you know, and at all different levels of, of, well, most of them were pretty prominent in their field anyway, I shouldn't say all mm-hmm. different levels, but some are international celebrities and some are not. And, and the generosity and openness was just really there. And none of them would have been there if they hadn't been that kind of person. But the, the truth is that when I was coming up, I didn't have any kind of business training. Mm-hmm. I learned by hanging around in the green room and talking to the principal artists when they came through and just, you know, saying, you know, is this a good time for me to talk to you? Can I, can I pick your brain for a minute? And then when I was a little bit more, you know, savvy, and that was when I was like a student singing in the chorus. Yeah. And then as I started singing parts myself and being invited out to coffee or dinner or whatever with people, then I just, I listened a lot yeah. and asked questions a lot. Um, I got Jane Eaglin to give me a, a private lesson back in the day because I just asked her for it. Yes. She didn't charge me a cent. It's like we were in a – I was a Valkyrie, and she was singing Brunhilde, you know, and I was like, can we <laughs> – can we, we stayed in the same hotel. I said, can we go to lunch? Can I buy you lunch? Can we – could we chat? And, you know, we kind of hung out. We were the only two people staying at the hotel, and we ended up hanging out. Um, she's delightful, by the way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> very, absolutely. very funny. She's hilarious. Um, I used to listen to her. This is this is an aside, but she would tell these hilarious stories about this wrestler she was obsessed with. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and just listening to her speak about it, and in, in what to me as an American is a delightful British accent was yeah. was funny. Oh, wonderful! Um, yeah, but I mean that in its that in itself just shows that. Your connection, of course, your connection was through the music that you were working on, but you got to know each other at a deeper level, even if it's to do with a wrestler. You realize that 
she's got a life outside of music. And I think that is something that young students, perhaps they're um, held back to ask the right questions or even to ask questions of the people that they really respect because they perhaps feel slightly inhibited or shy, etc. What What would you say to them, to those students who are burning to ask the questions, but are reluctant to do so? I would say, don't be reluctant. Really know that, that most of the time, people want to help yeah. you, and particularly want to help young people. And the trick to it is to pick the right time. If somebody is bustling out of the building and appears to be in a hurry, that's not the right time. No. <laughs> Wrapping somebody in the elevator is not the right time because uh, every conversation on an elevator is awkward. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, find, find a pause in the rehearsal where they're just, you know, um, where they seem to be relaxed, mm-hmm. you know, not in a rehearsal where, where they're obviously working really hard and tired or it's not going well or something like that. You know, find a time when, when they're more relaxed and, and say, Hi, I don't want to bother you. Can I can I speak to you for a moment? Mm-hmm. And if they say sure, then then there's your opening. If they say, could you get me at the next break? Then you wait till the next break, but don't then not come back. Yeah. Um, don't waste their time by apologizing for yourself over and over again. Just you know, say, listen, I really admire you. I'm loving watching you work. Would there be a time that I could pick your brain for five or ten minutes? Could I send you an email? Could we have a phone conversation? Whatever it is. Could I buy you a cup of coffee? Mm-hmm. I'm never going to turn down. Somebody wants to buy me a, a good cup of coffee or, <laughs> you know, a meal or, I mean, I don't, I don't need a student to buy me a meal. I'm just saying that I'm just, just throwing it out there, you know, yeah. four rows of single barrel. Um, I'm never going to, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to turn that down. And, and, you know, I, you don't have to buy me anything either. I'm happy if I have the time. Mm-hmm. to go out and sit down with some younger singers and, you know, let them pick my brain. But they have to take the initiative. Yeah. I am not going to be their mama. <laughs> not, <laughs> not in that situation. Now, if you come to my program, I'm going to be your mama for life. But if you, you know, in that situation, if I'm working, and I'm just using myself as an example, because I, I am not Jane Eaglin. I am not Christine Kirky yeah. by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. But, you know, I, I, I do know Christine, and she's the mm-hmm. same way. She's a, one of those generous spirits out there. And I, you know, I was an apprentice at Chicago Lyric Opera and Mm -hmm. I got, I had the opportunity. I'm not saying I was going out to drinks all the time with the stars, but you know, if many of them would take a few minutes to talk to you, if you just asked. Yes. Oftentimes they would would just initiate it, you know, because they knew that you were shy or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you flick your eyes their way enough times and they might (laughs) say hi to you. Um, You know, so it didn't work with Dmitry Horzovsky, unfortunately, but. (laughs) 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 But, you know, it's my advice is just be bold. Don't be afraid. They're just, nobody's going to eat you. And if they do, then chalk it up to them having a bad day or, you know, being one of those few people that's, that's not nice. Yeah. But most of the people out there are, I promise you. That's, that's wonderful. That's really, I mean, it's so encouraging to, to hear that. And, you know, and just to be reminded of that. Uh, because I think, um, as I said earlier, it's so easy for us to think in different hierarchies and that uh, you have to do so much to get to the next step. Um, of course, you need to do your preparation and work, etc. But this is part of a very important business skill to be able to talk to those people and to engage and, as you say, ask the right questions. Well, it is. And in fact, I would say it is an essential skill for an artist because yep. you're going to have to do it. Making those connections is the single most important thing you can do for your career outside of being good at what you do. Yeah. 
this kind of surprises a lot of people. A lot of people are terrified by the idea of the, of networking. Networking is this the scary thing. Yeah. Networking is nothing more than talking to people. That's yeah. all it is. And yes, I understand it's intimidating to talk to somebody who is a stranger and who has more authority and experience and um, power than you do. But it's something we all have to do. And and just the thing to one of the things that makes this easier is to understand a couple of things about people like that. One is that they don't like to have their time wasted. They're usually busy people, so don't waste their time. Mm-hmm. Know what you want to ask when you come up. You know, be prepared. Don't spend a lot of time apologizing for being alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, which is, and I mentioned that because a lot of um, of younger singers, in their efforts to be respectful, fall over themselves doing this. Yes. Just don't. It, it actually, it's actually annoying. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I always try to be extra kind to those people because I feel like they're nervous. But <laughs> you know, <laughs> not everybody will be. <laughs> not everybody will be. And that kind of goes also with you know the higher up they are, the the more you can expect that they just mm. don't have that time. Uh, pick your time. Make sure you go to, like I said, go go to them at a time when they are not busy. And realize that these people have some boundaries up because they are approached often. Yeah. And not always by people with good intentions. And so they don't always know what you're going to say. Are you going to come up and be somebody crazy? Because, you you know, when you're young singing, you may not realize the number of crazy people you're going to be dealing with in your career. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's a whole other topic, you know, handling patrons at yes. a party. Or, oh, or board I can members. imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the nutty things people feel like they can walk up to you and say. Yeah. And, and uh, oh, there was one other thing that I was going to say, and it, it sort of slipped my mind. Hmm, maybe it'll come back to me. Okay. But yeah, just be aware that they, they have those boundaries sometimes. And so until they can evaluate that you are not a crazy person and you're not somebody who's going to waste their time or be hard to get away from, mm. then they might be a little cautious. But once they understand that you are, you know, that you are there with good intentions, you just want a little bit of their time, you're not going to insist on invading their space or being overly friendly, then they'll open up right up to you. Yeah, and then the conversation can start. That's right. And it might not be a, a, a face-to-face conversation. It might be an email. Yep. You know, but that's okay too. So to sort of round off, um, I want to come back to a question I asked earlier, which you sort of touched on, but I think if you didn't mind giving us some bullet points, when you go into an institution uh, to talk about the business side of a career in singing, be that musical theatre or opera or recital or in whatever combination. What are the big pointers that stand out for you that anybody that meets you will know that these are your go-to pointers? Well... I think one of the things that I very frequently say, and probably say in every lecture I give, no matter what the topic is, is mm-hmm. that you are the boss of you. Yep. You own, you are the CEO of a small business, and the the time to start treating it like a business is now. Even if you're still in school, start mm-hmm. treating your singing as a business. You're going to need capital. Any business needs capital. You need money to Mm -hmm. run a business. You don't just pop out of school and suddenly get hired. I'm not sure it works that way in any (laughs) any industry right now. Um, But but as you know, as as somebody who is hoping to work as an artist, you are going to have to spend some time establishing yourself once you're out of school. And things are a bit different in Europe than they are in the United States. In the mm-hmm. United States, you, at least as I perceive them, because I am certainly no expert in how things are done in Europe. Um, 
what I know, I know from anecdotal evidence from talking to friends. <laughs> right. <laughs> from what I understand, you know, it's the school that you go to, at least in recent years, was very important and helped you get placement into jobs. That is not so much the case in the United States. In the U.S., it's it's about your ability and about what you can do. Mm-hmm. So even if you went to some tiny little community college that nobody's ever heard of, if you're Renee Fleming, yeah. <laughs> you can <couldn't> get hurt. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that Renee Fleming went to a tiny t- little community college. I'm just saying the talent and is exactly. is what is what matters as long as you can get it out there in front of people. That's that's the difficult part sometimes. Yeah, that's where the capital um, comes in. Yes, that's where the capital comes in. Exactly. So, you know, I just really, really urge people to think about their artist side in combination with their entrepreneurial side. Mm-hmm. I'm not discounting any of the artistic matters, but I don't talk about those as much because my the reason I am doing what I do, this kind of education, is to help people get that artistic side out there in front of people and yeah. then know what to do with it once they're there. So I I urge people to and teach people how to treat this like a business, mm-hmm. how to to, you know, what kind of money you need to have and how how you need to start saving even while you're in school. And I know that's a that's a conundrum. That is difficult. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, there are some things that you can do. You can't expect other people, especially right now, to fund your singing career. You're going to have to ask other people for help. But, you know, how do you – you can't constantly go to your friends and family to pay for things. So, you know, you have to figure out something – some way to do that for yourself. And that is also where learning what's quote-unquote side hustles um, you can develop – will help and then but that's also an area where a lot of young singers fall into traps because as i said flexible things often don't pay as well things that pay better often aren't flexible so it becomes a bit of a catch-22 so you know that's one of the things that i try to do is help people negotiate that and um you know interestingly as you said before the the pandemic has been a, a bit of a of a leveler for people in that nobody's working performing right now or very few people. I mean, I've had a couple of things that I've been able to do and I produced a season of online opera, but you know, moving forward, we're we're all in that same situation right now. You know, all the, all the, all the people who were singing at the Met are not singing at the Met right now. (laughs) Um, yeah. And so they've ha- they've also had to go back and do the same kinds of things that all the rest of us have been doing all along. Yeah. And it has created a lot more empathy and sympathy and connection as you pointed out, Nico. <laughs> and that's a wonderful place for us to start to build from. Yes. I think that that in itself will well this is the optimist in me. Um <laughs> that <laughs> that in itself will build the and really change the industry when we're coming out of this you know because i I very much hope so i wouldn't say we're all starting at uh point zero but you know there's there's a much more common ground perhaps said with respect but perhaps uh some professional high up uh singers had forgotten where they came from, or exactly what the road was. And younger singers, perhaps inexperienced singers, feeling they don't know what the route is, and they had to be creative and find ways of performing and creating during this time. And I think those two roads will, if not already have met, they they will meet, and I think they can connect and really build the industry, don't you think? Well, I'm I, I'm not sure that experienced singers as a whole have forgotten where they came from. I don't think anybody forgets where they, <laughs> you no. know, the hardships that they went through. Yeah. Um, I, I think I see it more as a as a place for singers and administration and managers to come together. Yes, and say 
it's time for us to change some of the bad old things. And, you know, this has given us an opportunity to do it. Yeah. Um, I was on a podcast just, well, it just went out Wednesday night, Uh um, talking about body diversity and weight bias, which I recently wrote an article about. And that's one of the, that is is one of my many platforms, shoebox, you know. Yeah. Issues. Topics. Soapbox issues. Is that I believe that, you know, diversity is essential to carrying forward the classical arts into the 21st century. We just can't keep paying lip service and ignoring it. And of course, you know, paying attention to what we call in the States, BIPOC, Black, Brown, and Indigenous people of color. Yeah. That's very important, LBGTQ, but also weight bias, ableism, ageism, and trans issues are, are all really important as we move forward because the younger generation are very interested in this injustice. And we're always looking to build audiences, but we are not courting younger audiences, no. especially in opera, with the kind of material we keep putting out there. We keep you know, at least in the U.S., we're really bad about doing just traditional repertoire. And we have a few new things that have entered into the uh, repertoire. But, you know, most of them are still men's stories. They're still white men's stories Yeah. Um, that are <laughs> two friends of mine, Jenny Cresswell and Kathleen Kelly, just did this fantastic lecture about sort of the Bechtel test for opera. Yeah. Um, and they best just published an article about it in, in middle-class artist. And, and, you know, it's a, it's a great article about how few roles there are for women. And that's something that just has to be fixed because nowadays there's more women in opera than, than men we're vastly outnumbering the number of guys. Yeah. And um, there just aren't enough stories or roles. And I think that, you know, one of the solutions for that for opera workshops, which are always having this problem, whether they're in school or, or if they're at, you know, summer programs like mine, yeah. is to consider non-traditional ta- casting. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's one way to do it. And in fact, that was one thing that we put on our application this year is, are you open to non-traditional casting? And a surprising number of people say yes. So, you know, I think that's – and that can be something very interesting, too, to, to just sort of doing these traditional works but taking a modern perspective on them. Yes, because also it's um, – it would often be – I mean, my view is we know that the people on stage are acting, but we can also use our Im- imagination. So, you know, if – for instance, there was recently uh, somebody used the example of um, two women playing sisters, but by the way they look, be it race or whatever, it's obvious that they wouldn't necessarily be sisters in real life. But we know that they're they're acting, you know. So we can look beyond those barriers, don't you think? I, I do, and I also think that that we often, because the way that that we have been socialized to think, mm-hmm. I would look at those two sisters. So I have, I come from a family where many of the children are adopted. I myself am adopted, and right. I have, I have my my older brother and his wife have six children. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is half Filipino, and two of them are African American. So, I have a white niece who has two little sisters who are dark-skinned. Yes. They're sisters. Exactly. No, and nobody's going to tell them that they're not sisters. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, there absolutely could be a black Dorabella and a white Fiordaligi, yeah. you know? It's just how we have been socialized to think. We have always seen or mostly seen these people on stage, um, you know, being the same race, being, being, because so much of opera is Eurocentric um, and white, but there's no reason it has to be that way. No. And, and this is what I'm talking about, normalizing 
diversity on the stage because the fact is that there are people in wheelchairs who have wonderful adventurous lives Mm -hmm. and fall in love and have romance there are fat people who are very romantically active (laughs) and not necessarily (laughs) just with other fat people Mm -hmm. um you know they're Older people have interesting, wonderful things happen to them. Why do we keep telling the same stories over and over and over again of the young, white, thin? Yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that I'm frankly a little bored with. I yes. want to see, you know, if I direct Cozy, I want to see, I love the older but wiser Despina. Uh-huh. I think she should be, you know, she doesn't have to be a cute little sabrette. She can be a cute older sabrette, you know, who has been around the block a few times. Exactly. Um, you know, there's all different ways to do it. So I, I, I think that that is part of the future. And I think that that is acknowledging what young people want to see. Mm-hmm. And, um, and not just young people people like myself, who yes. I would no longer categorize as young, um, <laughs> young at heart, um, that we want we want to see, you know, that diversity there. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, it's time for that. Yeah. And I think that that is a way that we can embrace and attract those younger audiences that we keep moaning about in our board meetings. Yes. You know? Yeah. How? You get them to come to the opera. Well, tell a story that they want to see. Show them themselves on stage. Exactly. It's it's all about association, isn't it? And that we that we see what we see around ourselves in real life, that we see that on stage, or vice versa, that we can see that is a possibility of seeing that around us and embracing it. Yes. And, and that also doesn't mean that we don't want to see that traditional Aida with, you know, the pageantry and everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we don't want to see a traditional La Boheme, but there's room for other stories yeah. and there's room for diversity, even with traditional storytelling, because I guarantee you that even in the 1840s, there were blind people and people in wheelchairs and Mm -hmm. (laughs) fat people who got married and, you know, all different kinds of things. So, so it's, it's silly to pretend like everybody has to fit into this really narrow uh, categorization of of, you know, what people are supposed to look like and yeah. who is entitled to have representation. Exactly. It's silly and it's destructive. And and as you said, it's getting boring. <laughs> it's getting boring. <laughs> yeah. And that is, that is the criminal offense in the exactly. arts, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for this very lively and incredibly um, inspiring conversation. It was really wonderful to have you as a guest. And I look forward to chatting to you again very soon. Thank you so much. And if anybody wants to get in touch and ask me any questions, I can be found at cindy at cindysadler.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sandy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Mozart Do? If you want to hear more, You can find other episodes on your podcast provider. Feel free to get in touch with me via Instagram at whatwouldmozartdo, follow me on Twitter or email info at whatwouldmozartdo.com.